Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming out. I was going to apologize for leaving my glasses at home and not being able to see any of you, but it's dark and I can't see any of you anyway. So um, thank you for coming out. Thanks to Town Hall for uh, inviting us out uh, tonight. Um, I will say this is wrapping up the uh, book tour, um, and this is the first place that has offered me beer while we do this. So for that, I thank you. So I want to take a moment and just ask um, Kamal to briefly introduce himself, and then we'll uh, get into the discussion that we have for tonight. Sure, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, Not much to introduce. Um, I'm currently an artist, visual culturalist, still a digerati, though. Um, Started Afrolink, quite some time ago, actually kicked off here in Seattle in 1990. This, this launched my career uh, being here. So it's, it's good to be back. Um, a lot of transitions over the years and um, my true passion creating art still allows me to create interactive and engaging content. So that's, that's who I am. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for coming out and doing me the honor of joining me uh, tonight. Um, so I thought I would start off and tell you a little bit about the backstory of the book um, and then get into a uh, conversation here with uh, Kamal. Um, I love talking about uh, this book. It was a fun book to write. It was exhilarating. And it was so because it is unlike what I usually do and have done over the course of my career, which is write about things that you more or less know the answers to. Um, and so this was the first book that I started off and had an idea of what the book was about. Uh, and then that changed about 10 times over the course of writing it uh, and researching it. Uh, but what actually came out at the end, I thought, was a fascinating journey to be sure, and mostly uh, because of the folks that I met uh, along the way. So this is a talk I usually give, um, describing the book as one of uh, two books in one, two stories, one book, and a little cocaine. Uh, we're going to skip most of that tonight. Um, and talk just about uh, the subject matter mostly of uh, book one, but maybe expand a little bit. Um, and for the rest of it, you'll uh, have to buy the book. Um, this project for me began with Black Lives Matter. Uh, I'm guessing there's not one of you in this room tonight that does not know uh, what that movement is, was, how it came about, uh, and what it stands for. Uh, and so when I started out to set uh, or set out to write black software, I really set out to understand the Black Lives Matter movement. How was it that this disparate group of people were able to marshal digital technology tools to do something that we had not accomplished since the late 1960s? And that was to put the issue of race, of blackness, of discrimination primarily at the hands of the criminal justice system back atop the public agenda in the United States. And so not since 1969, 1970 has that been the case. But 2014, 2015, 2016, the world knew who Black Lives Matter was, what it stood for, and many folks who would not be predisposed to agree, in fact, agreed with some of their central ideas. And that is simply that uh, black and brown folks are uh, treated differently in our criminal justice system today. So I wanted to understand how did this movement come about? And I had at least the good sense to know and to realize that there was a genealogy at work. That is that these folks didn't just come out of the blue, didn't just jump onto uh, Twitter and start tweeting and accomplish what it was that they accomplished. So I wanted to understand where did these folks literally and figuratively come from? Who were their antecedents, their uh, forebears in some way? And that very quickly led me to the 1990s. How many of you out there remember the 1990s? Okay. All right. I mean, really remember, like you were adults. Okay. All right. <laughs> so if you were 
In the 1990s, you were talking about technology and black folks. What was a term that you undoubtedly heard about frequently? Two words, a phrase, the digital divide, right? In the 1990s, and really in many ways since, that phrase has come to define people of color and black people in particular in their relationship to digital technology. And so when I got to the 90s and I began to ask some questions, the first thing that I marveled at that drove the rest of the book was this 5.2 million. 5.2 million represented the number of African Americans in 1995 who owned a computer at home and were online. These were the people erased from our history, folks that we never knew about because we assumed that black folks simply were not online, were not connected uh, to this technology. And so I started out from there to say, who are these 5.2 million? Where did they come from? What did they do? And how do they define our current technological landscape. And this is where I came across Kamal Al-Mansour, who's sitting on stage with me uh, this afternoon. And so I want to start in with a few questions and some back and forth um, with Kamal, but I'll start with a little bit of background for the audience just in terms of how we first came across each other or how I uh, managed to find you. And that was through um, another guy named William Morell, uh, who I talk about in uh, the book. And Will <clears throat> uh, would tell s stories, and I had talked to him three or four times before he mentioned uh, a time when he was in uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. He owned a computer store, only black-owned computer store in Cambridge. And he said, you know, a guy came in one day selling uh, clip art and all kinds of information on CD-ROMs about black people and about black life. And I bought them and sold them and he couldn't remember the guy's name, only that he came up from L.A., um, but they hit it off, and there was bored what he called at the time black software. And so I knew I had to find who this person was. Um, and eventually I landed um, on Google in the search for patents, um, and search for anything with African or Afro in it, and ultimately came across AfroLink, an AfroLink software. So with that, Kamal, I'm going to ask you if you will uh, do me the honor as a way of introducing that moment and sort of where you began. Um, a short passage uh, in the book, on page 76, uh, maybe starting on 76 with uh, my first job and then uh, switching over to the next page around where uh, you talk, talk about Reagan. Right. Yeah, my, my first job was working with one of the NASA centers. I was an alien, pardon the, pardon the pun. Uh, here I am fresh out of law school, 
24 years old, not knowing software, not knowing computers. But I could tell that there was something going on. There were connections being made. There were technologies being discussed, and I didn't see anyone like me participating. Now, keep in mind, Reagan was president at the time, and many of the projects I was working on at the time were in space. It was conflicting for me doing a gig that was supporting missiles in the sky, and on the other hand, trying to find my own identity and culture in the world. JPL was somewhat hostile in many ways, and I would come home each day thinking, what did I accomplish today that benefited people like me? And every day the answer would be nothing. And in many ways it was driven by a sense of wanting to accomplish something that benefited people like me. And just being somewhat insightful and attuned to what's going on, I could tell based on my experience doing these projects at JPO that there were very few of us doing anything in tech. And there was no market and nothing that existed. So I picked up a magazine. I'd see something and say, I want to do that. I need to learn that. I could write to the Organization of African Unity, and of course, their stuff was dated. I could reach out to different universities and different ministries, try to find out what's going on out there. If I'm a business person or I'm a student seeking to go behind American universities and maybe branch out, I want to go to Africa. I want to go to the Caribbean. Where do I go? What do I do? Is there a single source of data that I can access? I was looking at my life inward and outward. Those were unique times. But out of that climate came a calming central focus, which was Afrocentricity. It was a beacon. I was responding to that beacon, and I wanted to create a digital bridge to what I thought was a beacon that many people were interested in. Thank you. That moment, and I, rem I remember when we were talking on the phone and you recall that part of the story and where this journey for you began. Right. And I remember thinking to myself that that was, for me, the essence of black software. And so I had talked to William and he had talked about uh, sort of the material items, the clip art, the CDs, the information packages. But it was when you spoke those words that there was something beyond even those material products and certainly beyond the money that came with selling it um, that I thought was something bigger mm. than that. Can you tell us just a little bit about that motivation of going from JPL lawyer to then creating something that literally the world had never seen? I didn't know if the world had never seen it. Um, but I always figured if I couldn't find it, it didn't exist. Because there was no Google. Um, so you had to actually put in work in those days. Mm -hmm. But I was sitting in my apartment in Roxbury, Massachusetts, scanning channels. Um, never could, I don't know if that's ADD or not, but I couldn't stay on the channel <laughs> that long. So I just scanned channels and ran across a PBS show. And there was a software program called Culture, uh, developed by a professor from Princeton. 
And I'm watching, I'm intrigued, I'm like, wow, this is slick. There's animation, there's all these different things going on. Michelangelo, um, Da Vinci, nothing African. No pyramid, no Great Wall of China, nothing black, but yet the software is called culture. And I felt as though I was set on fire. Mm. And I said, I have to respond to this. I have to do, I have to respond to this and show that there is culture out there. And I spent literally 24 hours a day teaching myself programming, figuring out how to animate something, just making a button click. I was like high-fiving myself. I'm like, okay, this, <laughs> this, is, this is going to happen. And that was the moment. Wow. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit more about those few days. Now, I mean, that <laughs> seems to me, even given the difference between today and then in terms of the software environment, it still seems quite audacious to say, <laughs> I'm going to go out and build some software that's going to do this big thing and not have background in that at all. I, it was purely reactionary. Um, I try to live my life proactive, but every now and then you have to react to something that's there. And I, I didn't think about, I don't know how to program. I, I, I didn't think about anything logical, and I'm a logical person, unfortunately. But it's, I, I just felt compelled that I had to do something. And so I, I literally would, the clock would, I, I didn't know day from night. And I just kept going, 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 going. And it, it happened. Wow. It happened. So I realized late that um, I must have sent over the wrong slides. Um, so I'm not putting on the screen what should be there now, which is uh, several images of you mm. um, and CP Time, the original AfroLink uh, software uh, logo, right. uh, some of the products, uh, who we are. Correct. Um, tell us then how how that all developed from sure. you know a, a guy that doesn't know software to ultimately coming this way uh, in this mecca of uh, technology yeah. um, in many ways and building a, what ended up being a profitable business. Sure. I, prior to AfroLink, um, I started a bulletin board system. If you can remember, none, I don't know, a few of you maybe <laughs> can remember um, 300 baud modems, if you can <laughs> dig that. 1,200 was like lightning speed. And so I'd been collecting and amassing data, just data, 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 data. Um, Jet Magazine would put out something, the first black to do this, the first black to do that. So I started building a comprehensive database of first achievements. And it's unfortunate even in 2019 that we're still first at something. I started building data about, amassing data about Africa, the Caribbean. Um, I figured if I wanted to go to the, to the UK, could I have a list of all the black bookstores? Just anything I could build. And... Um, I figured out, let me logically organize the data. I'd been creating graphics for desktop publishing, so restaurants, things like that, so food, so I'd have a little chef, a little gumbo pot. 
didn't realize all along I was actually building clip art. And again, when I saw the show Culture, I wanted to do something affirmative. So I didn't, so when I created Who We Are, for example, it's not who are we, but it's more affirmative who we are. Um, Africa Insight. If you're traveling to Africa, you can go to one place, understand the languages of a country, the religions, every single nuance of data about every single country in Africa, the ministries, development orgs, banks, if you wanted to travel, if you wanted to do business, whatever you wanted to know about Africa. And so that became Africa Insight. Then I created the first clip art and Emerge Magazine, um, some may remember or not, uh, ran a story. And out of the blue, Dr. Molefi Kayasante, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the author of Afrocentricity, calls me. And he's like, hey, brother, what's ready? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, no banter. I said, Africa Insight, the clip art, um, how much? Mm. Um, I'll send you a check. Here's my address. Keep up the good work. Click. <laughs> so that told me that somehow this would mean something and somehow this would be purposeful. And then I created who we are and then it just snowballed and avalanche from there. This was all in Roxbury. And then the person I was married to at the time got a job. She left Lotus Development. Many of you probably don't remember. Lotus 123 was the spreadsheet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so she had a, got a gig at Microsoft. And Afrolink was kicking off. So I told her, I said, hey, I'm not gigging hmm. in Seattle. It's <laughs> Afrolink or nothing. Which probably led to why I'm married again for 20 plus years. But anyway. Um, so I came to Seattle and... I can't remember dude's name, but a writer of the tech section in, in the business section of Seattle Times uh, did a story, uh, took photos, and it was a space mission from there. Um, Black Enterprise Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Macworld, MacWeek, Windows, it just just took off. Everywhere. Yeah, Everywhere. Took off. I remember a story, I think it was the New York Times that picked up uh, sometime after that and talked about just the, the amazing success mm. and um, you know, your ability to have commercial success in a very short window of time, which seemed to say something, which is that people, certainly black folks at the time, but even beyond that, right. needed this, wanted this, was searching for, as you say, an answer that wasn't just a question, who are we, but, hey, I'm, let me tell you for <laughs> once yes. who we are. Exactly. Um, so I want to fast forward a bit. I know the, the clock is uh, moving. Um, to a moment in 1994, <laughs> um, <clears throat> give you a little bit of uh, background that's in more detail in the book. Um, there is a civil rights gentleman who runs a magazine called African Visions. His name is Timothy Jenkins. Um, he decides that there needs to be a summit of sorts of black folks 
who are connected to technology. And so he worked with the Congressional Black Caucus and in 1994 uh, gathered folks for an event that was ostensibly supposed to kind of map out what the future was going to be like for black folks on the uh, then called information superhighway. Um, this is one of those moments, it was early on, and as I started to talk to folks, Derek Brown, William Morrell, David Ellington, uh, all of them mentioned this moment, 1994, another one in 1996. Um, but Kamal was at this event uh, in 1996. And I want to read just a short passage from the book that sets up uh, the moment and uh, how Kamal left that moment and moved this conversation into thinking about a little bit about the, the here and now and about the future and what uh, black software, Kamal's story, and others really has to say about our present moment. Um, <clears throat> According to Missouri Congressman William Lacey Clay, the event drew 30,000 attendees with 152 media outlets from 21 states and Great Britain covering the proceedings. The program spotlighted more brain trusts and workshops than it had ever before been featured. Still, technology, computers, and the internet remained front and center from the beginning to the end of the conference. Sponsors were plentiful, the National Society of Black Engineers organized a two-hour reception for the, quote, African-Americans of the Telecommunications Age Conference. NASA orchestrated a high-profile hiring expose at the event's procurement fair. But not everyone who participated celebrated the moment or the event's outcome. Ken, Kamal, and William had been seated side-by-side side on the panel toward a more inclusive software and, quote, African-Americans and telecommunications, bystanders, or participants in the new electronic frontier. Brooklyn, New York Congressman Ed Towns had presided over the gatherings. As much as he had wanted it to be otherwise, the event hit Kamal like a punch to the gut. I remember those meetings. I remember a conversation with John Conyers. It's funny, it was one of those kind of things where you have folks from everywhere. They say we're not monolithic. And there are times I want to believe that, and there are times we should be monolithic. But you had all flavors and variations. When I started Afrolink, it was not driven by money. It was about purpose and meaning. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I wasn't Ivy League educated. There were many brothers and sisters there from the Ivy Leagues. I had disdain for corporate America, and many there were chanting to corporate America. And so I didn't go there with any preconditions or any expectations. I was just going there hopeful that there would be some alignment, some consensus of an agenda, a plan, an execution. I met many people over the years, and I heard a lot of rhetoric. From that, what do we do now? What's our plan? What's needed? When do we start? Let's, execu let's execute. Let's build. Going to the Congressional Black Caucus in 1994, the expectation that we wouldn't seek to insert ourselves and become part of what's there, but create something new. We shouldn't all be standing in line to work at IBM. We need to build IBM. Kamal went to Washington hope, hoping to plan what Jenkins had promised, a revolution. 
What he saw all around him was not even close. It wasn't even disruptive. If nothing else, the weekend had impressed on him a lingering question. Was a revolution in technology even possible? One that would put technology in the hands of black people to further our interests first and foremost. Kamal stood to make millions selling black software, but for him, commerce was a means to an end. Community uplift, economic empowerment, amassing intellectual property, black influence, and control. He sought those ends, but he feared that the future of black America's tech revolution was already turning us into slaves to commerce, making community concerns second place if they placed at all. Wow. <laughs> what, did I get it right? Yeah, just throwback. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you what do you remember from that event and what did you take away from that moment? Well, first and foremost, may rest in peace, John Conyers and other congressmen are impeccably tailored. Hmm. <laughs> no question about that. But as we were talking, you know, prior to the event, if anyone remembers 1994, it was the year of Clinton's crime bill. Mm -hmm. There was no discussion about that. You had in your midst, essentially, the precursor to black data scientists. What should our response be? What should the data tell us? What are the predictive analytics? How should we counter it? What can we expect as an output from this crime bill and what's the data behind it? No discussions about that. It was, pardon the expression, but it was more pomp and circumstance. Um, I expected to leave there with marching orders. Okay, I need to do this. I'm ready to go to work. It wasn't any less. Wasn't that? No. Was that a, a moment when you said, not so much that you're giving up, but you know some things aren't going a particular way that you thought they might and went a different way? Or It's, it's not so much giving up. It's, it's really almost digging deep, digging in, and saying, if the world won't go with me, then let me go alone and then let the world catch up. Mm. Um, I went there with no expectations and I left there with no expectations other than to just keep putting in the work. Um, that was pretty much it. But a, a moment squandered from your point of view. Yeah, I, I, I thought so. Again. Um, and then, you know, when you think about it, we can't expect Congress or politicians uh, to be techno technologically savvy. I mean, if you look at the hearings with Mark Zuckerberg, uh -huh. they, they still don't <laughs> understand technology. Um, and so there was really, there, there weren't any connecting, there, there, were, there were no data points that could connect us together and a, a black think tank should have been created. Hmm. Uh, a committee on black data should have been developed. Um, there should have been hearings on the digital divide. Hmm. How do we counter this? Again, what, 
what data are we as black folks building to respond to the wealth of data that's impacting our lives? Mm. It just didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. So we'll come back to some of these issues, but I want to ask you a couple of things. So, you know, Kamal and I talked uh, several times while I was writing the book. I went off and wrote the book um, and then picked back up when I said, Kamal, the book is out. Um, Here it is. Um, I'm interested and curious to hear what you thought of the book. Um, Did I get it right? What resonated? Maybe even what uh, your favorite part was or some of your favorite parts? There were many. Well, (laughs) don't, I don't want your head to blow up too bad, but (laughs) it it was, it was masterful to me in, in many ways. Um, the sections other than my sections were brilliant because I don't want my head to blow up either. But what, what struck me, and I don't, I don't know how many read the book, but what struck me was the section um, committee men, the chapter committee men. And I don't want to spoil it for those who have yet to buy the book, but when you talked about IBM, you talked about commissions being formed, Kerner Commission, I'm sure many knew the, heard of the Kerner Commission, and how politicians relied on technology. IBM was the company of the day. Tom Watson was actually the CEO that was in these conversations. And if you fast forward to today, those conversations are taking place with Google, with Facebook, every now and then with Apple. So it it was revealing to me, and you, you captured it in terms of showing the construct and the framework of programming being created, algorithms being defined, and how politicians were leveraging technology to control people. I thought that was brilliant. And when you you mentioned Simulatics Corporation, if anyone remembers Cambridge Analytics or Cambridge Analytica, how can you forget? (laughs) But then... You spoke about Simulatics Corporation. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you could take everything that was happening in the 60s, 70s, take that program, and stick it into today. Mm -hmm. How should the media respond to black events? What should the media do? How should police um, organize? It's the same, same playbook. And, And based on certain things that we do, algorithms kick in. And there's a response. And I thought that was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. It, it certainly was the, I think, the most enlightening part of it for me, uh, m- making my way backwards in history and finding our present, essentially, uh, going back to 1960 and seeing this is the same conversation that we're having right now in almost every possible way. Um, so before we go out to the audience with some questions, um, where, where do you think we should be headed? We're here in Seattle with the Microsofts and Amazons and many other tech companies. You're in Silicon Valley with a host of others. If we are to make some kind of progress, if we were to do some of the things that you had hoped to do back 20 or so years ago, 
is there a way forward in your mind? And if so, um, what's maybe a, a small step in that direction? Wow. Um, let me start by saying this real quick. I think a brilliant job is being done. Reconstruction, the series Reconstruction. Dope, Gates. Mm. If no one's seen it, you need to see it. It changed, I thought I knew a lot about how America became America um, after the Civil War. Mm. But that changed, it, it changed a lot. And I say that to say we are good at looking backward 400 years. Mm. We suck at looking forward 400 years. Mm. When you think of Afrofuturism, you think of Black Panther, Wakanda. That's pretty much it. Yep. But it has to be something real. It, it essentially means a future for Africans. Mm. And it has to be driven by data that we drive and data that we build and data that we own. It has to be meaningful for us. Um, again, there are black data scientists that exist. We need to come together, leverage data, build data to counter algorithms and understand predictive analytics. I, I mentioned that earlier, but we, there, that's the path forward. That's the path forward. And it's, it's, it is difficult. Yeah. I agree. Thinking about our, um, inability to plan and think much beyond uh, the near future. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I'd like to point out in this book is it's a tremendous opportunity, meaning we can look back 50 years, the scope of this book, and mm -hmm. see where that got us right. in our pre present moment. Um, and it shouldn't be too hard for us to look in the future and say, Agreed. if we do nothing... <laughs> what will this look like? Exactly, and even you know, even much worse, I would exactly. imagine. And exactly. so, at least some imperative to do something differently. That I, I think I agree starts in this way of folks coming together and saying, "What do we want to happen? What do we want to see happen?" And right. let's make it happen. Absolutely. How are we doing on time? Are we ready for Q and A? Okay, let me maybe ask Kamal one other question, which is, what wasn't in here that you thought might be, or what was a part of the story that you lived and the experiences you had um, in those early days of uh, software, of the internet starting to come online, um, what else, what else is part of that, that history, that story? Uh, hmm. I think understanding the value of intellectual property, yeah. ownership. I don't know those of you who remember Park or uh, Palo Alto Research Center the fight over the mouse, um, the fight over DOS and Windows. Those conversations and those events were 
exclusionary. There was no thought, no insight given to, it's almost like a commercial for a certain shampoo that only works on a certain type of hair. No diss. (laughs) And I say that to say that as technology was being built, Apple was creating Apple, Microsoft. Those were the, the two behemoths at the time. There was not a care or concern whether what they were doing represented anyone other than the status quo mainstream. And so digital divide, I think it was more than digital divide. Um, It's still an exclusive club. Silicon Valley is for real. Um, There are certain folks that win and there are certain folks that don't. Um, And that hasn't changed. So I think that that part of it, why we were doing what we were doing, and the response or reaction that really wasn't there, but the fact that, you know, I, I retained my intellectual property so I could repurpose content, mm-hmm. but also being a lawyer, but there were many that gave it away. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I was, I was amazed by the number of folks uh, that I spoke to, like yourself, who were uh, entrepreneurs, who were producing, building things in the 1990s. Most of it, you know, coming, crashing down by the end of the 90s. Um, and those who said, you know, I was locked out, essentially. You know, this is a ownership game. And not everybody can be owners. Or there's a right. way in which, you know, the VCs or Silicon Valley folks are picking and choosing the winners and losers. And so it right. might be a... Harvard-educated, trained engineer and have a brilliant idea, which you will take and use as your own, but you won't give me the capital to start the company that would preserve that. Very true. Um, And that seems to me uh, part of that equation going forward, really, about ownership. Um, All right, I think I'll I'll stop there. I bet uh, some of you out there have questions. we're going to get a little bit of guidance on how to yeah, do Yeah, because we are recording for Town Hall and KUOW, we just ask that you please come up to the mics if you have a question, even though we can clearly hear everyone. Um, it really helps us with the recording and with anyone who's using our hearing loop. Um, and just please try to keep your questions concise. Thanks so much. Uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Great book, great, great, great discussion here. Um, in in the last chapter, you, I was really struck by the ending. Um, you know, it's it's all very similar to the past, and yet there's this these ways in which it's different. It's like Black Lives Matter, as you say, succeed in doing something that hadn't happened since the late '60s. So I just, right. I'm curious about more more reflections from from both of you on that. Sure, I'll, I'll start with I'll start with that ending, um, which I get questioned about a lot because it's one of those endings that's not really an ending, um, and ends as for those of you uh, who've read the book know with a question, and it's it's really precisely because I wanted to acknowledge what was represented in what I called book one and two 
of the book. That is, to acknowledge that there is something powerfully different about Black Lives Matter that deserves attention and perhaps more attention than it gets. Um, the what what the folks that were involved there, a lot of young people, but many uh, sort of a multi-generational group of people um, who marshaled technology to do amazing things. And we have the technology that made what they did possible. Um, and it's interesting to me when I talk to a lot of the Black Lives Matter activists, many of them push back at the sort of the role that technology played in what they did. Um, and I would always push back and said, you know, do you really think you could have done this 10 years ago or 15 or 20? Um, and I think not. So on the one hand, I really, really, really wanted to give um, attention, due attention to that. On the other, acknowledging our 50-year history with digital technology and black people's relationship to it, to know that A, it was not created and designed for these revolutionary purposes, um, and that that in many ways constrains the whole history and perhaps the future of where we go now. And so I leave it as an open-ended question. Um, can we ever, can our digital tools ever outrun white supremacy? And it's my way of hedging, basically. Um, I don't know. Right? We may, but it really depends on the decisions that we make at crucial moments like we are in right now. Okay, that's a question you're asking us. I'd like to answer that. I would love to hear your answer. Thank you. Okay, and this is meant to be entirely respectful. The word revolution was put out here a couple times. I heard the word revolution stated. Most often when the word revolution is used in the context of technology, it's a reference to something new, like uh, maybe an eight-sided marble or something. But um, what I'm suggesting is this, that the core purpose of the revolution that you're discussing, it came up in the discussion of the Black Congressional Caucus, and that they didn't bite on to the idea and get with it. And I would suggest this, 50 years you're discussing in the history, I would suggest we look even deeper into the history of the use of this machine. My understanding is this machine was used to guide bombs at one point, to calculate the trajectory of bombs falling and to collect taxes. So a revolution to me is my child can play a game on it and enjoy themselves. You know, mm -hmm. that is a revolution. Mm -hmm. And I would offer simple encouragement that if this man can do it, another man can do it. Mm. So, you know, knowing who we are, I would suggest that we use the example of Harriet Tubman compared to uh, Wakanda Forever, that something actually happened. You know, right. that there's an actual superhero in our history. And maybe we should recognize that compared to something that's been put on a comic book level to present to us as some distraction. And one last little plug, Jay-Z is going to be 60 this week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for that. And I, you know, I, I appreciate your 
point out, and I agree with you about the meaning of the word revolution, and I won't speak for Kamal, but that's the sense I got in thinking about that moment at the Congressional Black Caucus. That is, here is an instrument that was designed for something um, completely counter to our interests. Um, and had been done everything, as you say, to build bombs, had been, done, had been utilized for other nefarious purposes to uh, keep in place apartheid um, in some ways to help um, move along the Holocaust. If we think about IBM and some of its uh, work um, earlier in the century. Um, and so I agree that a revolutionary, a revolution in technology would be the upending of that interest, and it's precisely the reason why I remain somewhere between cautiously optimistic and pessimistic about our ability uh, to do that. Sure, yeah, let me chip in. Um, the revolution that we need to build is more than just missiles. Every time you scan something, every time you walk down a street, a profile is made. There was a lot of uproar about Facebook in particular invading our privacy, but we all, when we download an app, agree to something. A lot of us don't really read the click-through agreement, but it's there. The precursor to Facebook was Axiom. When grocery stores first introduced the UPC code, they started building profiles of everyone that walked through the store, what they bought, how much, et cetera, et cetera. So the data that's being amassed about each and every one of us and the concept of Big Brother is real. It's been here for a long time. So it's not just a singular revolution. It involves classes and masses. With respect to Harriet Tubman, no different then than now, you have to know that you need a hero just like you had to know you needed to be freed. And so there are many of us that don't know we need a hero. And so heroes are made from the masses. Heroes don't necessarily pop up and say, excuse me, everyone, I'm your hero. This is what we're going to do. We define our hero based on need and necessity. And what's lacking is an agenda that defines how we move forward, and who will or may emerge as the hero. Profound. Yes. How's it going, guys? My name is Rob Demuse. Thanks a lot for being on the KOW today. That's the only reason I'm here. I found out about you, and I rushed here. Amazing, Kamal. I'm going to be spending the next couple of days just researching you and learning about your amazing history. <laughs> and then, obviously, I'm looking forward to reading your book. So I'm a tech founder in Seattle. I built a company. I had to shut it down in 2018. And I'm also an author. I wrote a book called Un-Silicon Valley. And it's coming to my question to you all. I was not able to get into the Silicon Valley tent. I raised over a million dollars. I, I will, I'm a former Microsofty, you know. I wasn't able to get in. So my book was really challenging and saying, 
how do we increase diversity in the tech startup community? Because right now the discussion is, let's get more black VCs, let's, let's build our own accelerator program. But from my experience building a tech company for five years, I feel we need to change the entire paradigm. Because for example, you cannot, and in, in Silicon Valley they call this thing, uh, they look for bl uh, blue flames. These are young, 20 years, 18, ready to spend 100 hours a week working. Um, and and uh, it doesn't align with African Americans and, and even whites in low social economic background. I had to work two jobs to, uh, when I went to college. I could not have a similar story as Mike Zuckerberg, the luxury of thinking up an idea while you're at Harvard, you know what I mean? So what are your thoughts about that, uh, about, and do we need to really change that paradigm? And go back to Kamal's way of building a company, bootstrapping, how can we figure out how to bootstrap and not really try and fight to get into this um, startup pipeline, which is very, um, antagonistic to women, to people of color, to people from social, lower social economic backgrounds. Thank you. Mm. And by the way, I have two copies of my book for you guys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it. Um, come on, maybe I'll ask you to say more, and I will just say that it's this rings true. I've been thinking a lot about this as a subject for what might end up being the next book or so forth. But folks who ask me kind of what's next, and we end up in this conversation about the entrepreneurial startup culture, Silicon Valley culture. And I, I remember a couple of weeks ago talking to someone who was you know, saying, you know, it's amazing how many white guys are out there who don't even have an idea and get thrown millions and millions of dollars at them for them to maybe come up with an idea uh, and then move forward with a company. And so money that just finds its way to you in ways that it does not to, uh, to other folks. Um, and thinking about the question of value, right? So here's, you know, we hear all the tech companies talking about diversity, um, and you sit here, Microsoft, Amazon, just a couple of days ago, I was looking up their diversity numbers. And they will say, we're serious about it. And yet, you know, it's been at sort of 2% for the last six to eight years. And most of that 2% is at the lower rungs of the company. Zero in the managerial, zero in the executive ranks. There's something, it seems to me, about this idea of value and the value of black and brown bodies if you are a founder, an entrepreneur, that is differently valued than if you are white and in the same space. And I think that is something that has to ultimately change if we're going to use this as a way forward in some way. Uh, I'll... Pardon me. I mean, as, as I'm sure when you get older, you like to use analogies and metaphors and things like that. It just makes life easier. Indeed. <laughs> Plus, you forget exact thoughts. So anyway, yep. um, let, let me use two parallel data points. 
Romare Bearden, Pablo Picasso. Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol. If any of you are art lovers or collectors, then with the Picasso Bearden situation, Picasso was influenced by Romare Bearden. Picasso's work was considered fine art. Bearden's work was considered primitive. Basquiat influenced Andy Warhol. But Basquiat was considered a street artist, whereas Warhol was considered a fine artist. In Silicon Valley, if there is a black executive, they're in two positions, sales or HR. HR is a subterfuge. It's camouflage so that we think there are numbers or there's diversity or there's inclusion in Silicon Valley. It is a white boys club, full stop. With the VCs, it's a buckshot approach. I'd rather throw 30 white ideas and see which one sticks versus one black idea that I know will hit. Another concept, again, related is, and it pains my heart every time I think about it, sorry. And again, is the reason for black source data. Nielsen just reported that 2020, 2021, black folks in America will spend $1.54 trillion. We could VC and fund any bloody thing we want. We could pay for anything, we could buy anything, but we buy things based on likes and views and we can control our own destiny, but what do we choose to do? There should be more black VCs, there need to be more black VCs. There's, the money is there, money's not the issue, but we are a consumer class, unfortunately, versus a producer class. And so I think the thing that we need to do is understand it has to be more than black Twitter. We have to understand the necessity for why we need data, why we need black tech. That's the first hurdle. I think the value concept, as you mentioned, is, is, is doable. But we, we have to understand why we need it. And if we understand why we need it, then hopefully there's some VC there to, to fund it. Is that a, I mean, is that a failure in some way or a shortcoming in our own community? Um, is it our, you know, looking out on the landscape and saying there are those of us that have money and real money that could back and fund these things, but we're not, or tech's not on the radar, or... <laughs> I just returned from Central America. Uh, my father-in-law passed, and so my wife's from Belize. And so we were there for his funeral. Every time I go, I'm amazed at the mega stores that are Chinese in Africa, China, in the hood, in L.A., every time I visit. Chinese stores in the hood, 
hair care products, beauty supplies, Korean. Oprah has billions of dollars. Tyler Perry has billions of dollars. There are many black individuals that have billions of dollars. But if they don't see the necessity for black ownership, be it tech, be it produce, be it the necessities of life, It goes back to my point about there needs to be an agenda. If there's no agenda, it can be one to 20 points in that agenda. These are the things that we need. Harriet, there was an agenda. One item, freedom. That was the agenda. 60s, agenda, civil rights, fairness, social justice, equality, education, etc. As you move through time, the agenda dwindles down to virtually nothing because the celebrities have multiple Bentleys, mm. likes, mm-hmm. views. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's necessity. So it dwindles down to nothing or it dwindles to everything, which True. is just the, the same, you know, and the idea that every cause and need and like out there is virtually the same, which is, you know, a lot where you get in the, the digital space with no then reason to really push around a given agenda or set of actions. Other questions? Hi. That's a long question because it's on your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm going to explain why. Um, my name is Victoria Tyron. I'm a uh, student at the University of Washington. Shout out to my professor in the back. Um, she's all over there. Um, so I'm going to try to articulate this question as well as I possibly can. Um, so a little sort of context. Um, uh, my family and I are immigrants from Ghana, and so in my very short 21 years, there seems to be a movement back to Afrocentrism, and you can like correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably haven't lived through enough to see that it's always been there. Um, and when you mentioned uh, the ways in which we look at Afro, um, Afrofuturism, like we are very good at looking back 400 years, but not very good looking ahead 400 years. You probably already touched on that in answering the last few questions, but what are some of the ways in which you believe young um, black Americans and Africans can sort of push that narrative forward of looking ahead 400 years as opposed to looking back 400 years to emphasize our Afrocentrism? Um, yeah. Mm. Maybe I'll ask you to start that one. <laughs> you can both answer. Like Age before beauty. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's tough. And I say that as um, father of an 11-year-old um, and having spent, you know, a, a, a a year or so of a millennial cousin living with me. Uh, and <clears throat> I think it's there, right? So I think I see it more often than I remember seeing even uh, kind of in my uh, earlier years of my 20s and my 30s and so forth. Um, and it comes from folks who are entering careers 
and having this experience of being shut out and seeing that there are closed doors and ultimately retreating to the fact that the only folk I can really turn to are people in my community. So I see the impulse is there, and that makes me hopeful. Um, And that makes me hopeful as I see um, web environments and other environments that are meant and built to support the community. I think what's missing is the same thing that we keep talking about is an agenda and an infrastructure to move that beyond mere sort of community self-help, as it were, to something much more tangible um, in the ways that can really counter the current sort of landscape uh, that's out there. Before you answer, I have a question to that. What do you say to the people who identify certain sort of milestones as meeting the agenda? Like, again, you mentioned like Black Panther, that coming out and that being like the highest grossing superhero to have a black superhero as its front man. People will see that as the agenda meeting. Like, what do you say to those people who identify that as the agenda as opposed to something else? Like, say, he mentioned Harriet, which would then give greater priority than like a movie. Well, I mean, I think in, in a certain respect, it comes to, you know, I think back to this idea of revolution. And I'll tell you what I mean kind of in my little circle of the world. Um, I teach a lot less today than I used to, but when I do today, I do some very conscious things. I will sometimes teach a class and not have anyone who is not black on the syllabus, right? Um, Or to do things that are um, in solidarity in that way, as a complete and entire way of doing things. And so it's one thing to say, oh, here's a big example of a blockbusting movie. And it's one. right? So what would it mean for that to be the norm and not the exception? And I think that's where we have to begin to think about in terms of what the future looks like. Um, we have, our history is full of exceptions, like you were mentioning them earlier about, uh, you know, the first black person to do this or the first to accomplish that. Um, what we need to do is to move beyond so that that is in some ways, in many ways, the norm. And what would that look like? Hmm. I like the way you tilt. <laughs> it's <laughs> very directive. I'm used to that. Um, Hmm. My mom always said, never start a statement with um. Hmm. So. (laughs) (laughs) It's contagious. Wakanda's not real. We know that. But we also, but what is real is the dystopian state that we're in. I watch a lot of movies for content, for information. And there's dystopian, dystopian, dystopian. Uh, Book of Eli is a dystopian, futuristic movie, all based on the Bible. One of the unfortunate things is that when you're in that dystopian or apocalyptic state, you then realize that you're in that dystopian and apocalyptic state. I'm yet, I have yet to see a realization that we are in this position. 
we suffered the humanizing event after the humanizing event. Sister shot in her house in Fort Worth, Texas. It happens every single day all over America. Mass incarceration, disproportionate black man. If we see our numbers dwindling, what do we do, revolution, to revolve and evolve and make our numbers grow? It has to be thought-provoking. It has to be inspiring. It has to be a need and necessity to want to produce and reproduce over and over and over again. It's self-awareness. And it's unfortunate there's still brothers out there and sisters that think that their survival is only 18. I just want to live another year on my block. So how do you reach that person to inform them that their future is far beyond 18 years? It's, it's tough. But like the hero, like Harriet, I don't want to go to Mars. That can't be the future. But yet we have to, some of us have to build a futuristic state of mind. Create a visual image, not Wakanda, but how we can exist and should exist five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now. And hopefully impress upon folk that this would be a great way to live without crime, without social injustice, without poverty. Self-realization. Thank you. Mm. If I can... So much, I think, I think That's it. All right. Thank you so much, Kamal. Thank you again. I appreciate you coming all this way and uh, Absolutely. having this conversation with me. I'm, I'm honored and humbled that you would consider me for the book. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to all of you.